Well, we're still in uh, the book of Ephesians. We've been in Ephesians now for, um, I think it's 20 years. <laughs> it's been a while. And uh, I just come to this, this I, I'm just going verse by verse, and our next verse we, that we've come to uh, is in verse 28. Verse 28 and the more I looked at this, it just seemed like the material that just came to me was enough to make a sermon out of it. And so I thought, okay, we'll just do one verse. I mean, I'm not in a hurry if you're not. And in verse 28, let the thief, Ephesians 4:28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work. Or labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those who are in need. Uh, the, the apostle has been uh, laying out certain differences between that person who has come to Christ and the person who has not. Uh, you'll notice up there, he starts this section in verse 17 by saying, Now, this I say and testify in the Lord, that you not walk as the Gentiles walk. There should be a difference in your daily conduct and in theirs. But in verse 20, he tells you why. He said, all of that, that's not the way you learned Christ. That's the key right there. The Living Bible puts it like this in verse 20. That isn't the way Christ taught you. In other words, there is a relationship with Jesus Christ that defines Christianity. This is not uh, a work salvation. You've, you've met Christ, and He's different, and He makes us to be different. He causes us. If he, uh, the book Prophet Ezekiel said, I, I will put a new heart in you. I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What an amazing passage. <clears throat> this is what we sometimes call the new birth. It's where God by the spirit comes into our hearts and makes us different, makes us new. And so that uh, the distinction here is not rules, we're not following rules, we're following Christ. You, and, and what he will point out is, what, what do you get from Christ? What did you learn from Christ? You didn't learn that from Christ, he will say. Uh, we started out in verse 25, put away lying. You didn't get that from Christ. And in verse 26, uh, being angry uh, to the point of sin. You didn't get that from Christ. See, you have not... You have not learned these things from Christ. So that's the point that he's making here. And he's just laying out, he's getting very specific. As some would say, he's plowing real close to the corn here. And, he's, and one of the points that he's making is that if you're stealing things, in verse 28, stop it. Get a job. <laughs> oh, Paul, don't you mean that I should get counseling? No, Paul would say, you need to get a, go to work. But this is an amazing, simple approach 
And so we'll, we'll look at it from uh, three standpoints here. The, the first one is the problem of theft that he's actually dealing with. The second is the solution of work. I wonder if you've considered the biblical view of labor. And then third, the goal of prosperity. He says, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. There's the solution. All of these have a negative with a positive following. Doing honest work with his own hands, and then here's the goal, so that he may have enough to give to those who need. That's the goal of prosperity. So those are the three things that we will look at this morning. Let's jump in here. First is the problem of stealing, the problem of theft. And there's a couple of points on this in verse 28. Let the thief steal no more, no longer. Um, Evidently, there were some Christians who still had a problem with stealing things. He's writing to Christians. They still had a problem with lying. They still had a problem with anger. They still had a problem with stealing things, pilfering. So he, so he tells them, listen, you didn't learn it from Christ, and what, you, what comes from Christ is the new standard. This is the new normal. Christ offers the alternative lifestyle. And in... In the Greek text, it is literally a continual tense. It's something that's ongoing. Don't be continually stealing. Somebody must have had a habit. Now, the, and it's interesting to me that the Greek word for steal that is used here is klepto. Now, do you, are you familiar with the, the category of a kleptomaniac? What, what is that? That's somebody who can't help himself. He, he can't stop stealing. He, um, and I, I jotted down this definition of somebody who's a kleptomaniac. It is the uncontrollable desire to steal when there's no need to do so. The theft is then followed by an internal release of pressure so that the thief may be properly diagnosed as one having an obsessive compulsive disorder. So there's an actual category of people who, who using this Greek word, would fall under this verse of Scripture, and Paul says, stop doing it, and how simple, go to work and give some money away that you earn. In other words, Paul is bringing against these diagnoses in the psychological realm a conversion therapy. I was impressed this morning in our early service or at Bristol Road. We had uh, uh, what is called Team Challenge from Lansing. 
And it's a group of young people who have had life-controlling issues, drugs, alcohol, sex obsession, and so on, and, and that, that Jesus has set them free. One of the things that they said this morning is that the recidivism rate, the return rate for those young people who go through their program five years later, and this is an intense Jesus-only program. I mean, that they are presented with Jesus Christ, the living Lord, as the solution to their sin and to their habit. Those who go do, through their program, 86% success rate after five years. Those who go through the typical alcohol, drug, rehabilitation program, the secular program, 6% success rate compared to 86% success rate. Now, I personally think there is a role for psychiatry and psychology. I think there's a role. I'm not sure what it is, but I give it to that. I give you that. But here's what I believe. We're calling a lot of things and diagnosing things as uh, obsessive, compulsive behavior when the Bible calls it a sin that Jesus can deliver you from. And that we need to recognize that Jesus came, and he could have come as a psychologist, he could have come as a politician, he could have come to correct mistakes, but what he came was as a Savior to save us from our sins. Can I get a witness from somebody? Hallelujah. I want, and I want you to know, and I don't know how you feel about all this. I, I don't know if you're politically correct. I guess you know now that I'm not. I'm just trying to be true to the Scriptures here. I'm just trying to be faithful to the Apostle Paul. Because if there's anything you should get at church, it's what does the Bible say? Look, everybody, you can get everything else anywhere else. What, it, what you get at church should be what the Bible teaches and, what, and, and the person of Jesus Christ and what He can do for you. This is our calling. This is our uniqueness. So uh, one of the things that I notice here, and let me just add this. You'll, this passage in which the apostle lays out certain, I don't know, shall we call, say orientations, predispositions to certain things. See, some people have a predisposition to lying. I mean, you, they, they just have a hard time telling the truth even when they're not trying to get out of trouble. So he says, stop lying. There are some people who have a predisposition to anger. So he says, he put, he says don't, don't anger toward, to, be, to the point of sin. The solution is, don't let the sun go down on your head. Put a limit on it. Some people have a problem with stealing. They steal when they don't have to. They're not even hungry or needy. Uh, there's some people who have a problem with uh, wrath and drama. Verse 31 uses the word clamor. That means, clamor means drama. There's some people, they just need to be the focal point of attention with a lot of drama going on in their life. Paul says, stop that. And there's some people with sex obsessions. He picks that up in chapter 5. They, they just are aflame and in bondage to certain sexual obsessions. We're going to get to that. <laughs> Y'all better be praying for me. 
and I'll be giving my personal testimony. No, I am just kidding. <laughs> no. There are some people who have a problem with wine and alcohol. Some people have a genetic predisposition towards stimulants or with alcohol. I know it's a depressant, but, but that's in chapter 5, verse 18. What the apostle is doing here is he's laying out to the Christian church He's dealing specifically with various issues in which some Christians have that problem, some Christians have that problem, some Christians have that problem, but Jesus is the answer to all of them. And what he does is he, he, he helps us to understand that, look, we're a messed up bunch, and we're, we would do well not to fuss at each other, okay? Because I got my issues, you got your issues, but we center around the risen Lord and ask Him to deliver us and save us and rescue us on a daily basis. And these, these orientations, these genetic or psychological predispositions, each one of us are unique in our fallen nature. And some of us are born with these predispositions. And sometimes somebody will say, do you believe that uh, homosexuals were born that way? And I said, I, I think we're all born fa- with fallen human nature. That that's not the point. The point now is, what is, where does the Lord Jesus Christ come and set the parameters? What is the Christian life to look like? So... <clears throat> um, That's kind of the direction that the apostle is going here. And and, and this morning we're looking at this issue of theft. So he says, stop continually stealing. If you have a problem with pilfering, stealing, taking things not yours, maybe it is uh, like uh, one guy told me where he works that they would clock in, then the person would leave, go to a local bar and drink for a couple hours and come back and the, they, the employees would cover for him. That's stealing. You may not be taking money, but you're taking your employer's time. Um, when I was in college, I'll tell you this because I have repented of it and been forgiven by God and man. But when I was in college, I uh, was doing a paper and I copied right out of a book an entire paragraph and turned it in and had my name on it. That's called plagiarism. And uh, the I could have flunked out of college based on that. But in my naivete, the professor said, Larry, I don't think you're smart enough to do this intentionally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, he was right. And so he gave me a D uh, because the paper was good, even though it was somebody else's. (laughs) But he gave me a D and I graduated. But it's amazing how many things you can steal. Steal this here and that there. and, And Paul says, you need to stop stealing. If you want something, if you set your heart on it, the apostle says, I have the solution. Work. <laughs> Work. 
I wonder if we have really considered the biblical view of work. And I want to give you, in three quick statements, the biblical worldview of work, labor. Um, This was a question that I saw on a website that a guy wrote. Why do we have to work to survive? What's the point of work? Why do we have to work? And I noticed on the website that after five years, there were zero answers. (laughs) Nobody had an answer. Why do we have to work? What I want to give you is the fact that God has designed life to include work and labor as part of it. What the apostle says is, if you want something, work, get a job, do labor. Three reasons that he calls us to work. Number one, it is a sanctifying and spiritually protective effort. It is sanctifying. There's a natural tendency in our fallen nature to obtain something without effort. You ever had somebody say, take it easy. I really don't need that advice. I just sort of take it easy. What I need is somebody to say, do that which is hard. That's what I need to hear. The easiest place in my house is the recliner. But people who get in them, studies show, if you spend time in your recliner every day, you die about five years earlier than most people who don't. Your recliner, you need to view it as a casket. Um, God told Adam after the fall into sin and his exile from him and Eve from the Garden of Eden, this is in Genesis 3.19, he said, God said to Adam, said, from this time forward, you will reap your harvest, you will earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. In other words, God has put into place since, the, since human nature is now fallen and sin has entered into the human race and death by sin, God has installed in humanity's program that you must work hard to eat your bread. That's, that's now installed into the economy of life. He said, um, it will take great effort and toil in order to do this. This is a part of your sanctification. The word that Paul uses here in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, no longer steal, but rather let him labor, the word is kapos. It means to be drained, to be diminished, to to be taken away. It means you, it's the word that is used for exhaustion when your energy is removed. Working hard to the point of exhaustion is the will of God. 
<laughs> okay, well, <laughs> so much for this sermon. <laughs> Next time I go through Ephesians, I may put a little note by that one. But here's, here's the way I think this works. Somebody comes to you and says, hey, let's go to Las Vegas this weekend and party. What do you say? Oh, man. Number one, I don't have the money. And number two, I'm too tarred. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would say. When you work hard all day and they hand you that paycheck, that is precious stuff. And you're not going to go blow it on a $100 smorgasbord in downtown Las Vegas, which is what they have. Y'all know that? $100 smorgasbord. How many have ever eaten there? <laughs> yeah, I, got that. I see you're not playing along. But that you don't want to take $100 and blow it on... Cheese dips. And you don't have the strength or the time. Somebody, after you've become an adult and you've started be being responsible and earning your bread by the sweat of your brow and you come home in the evening and you get there about six and you want to sit down and your buddy calls you up and he used to, used to go party when you was in college and he calls up says, hey man, I know a ha place where it's happening tonight. Well, they were going to party till midnight. You're like, I am not going to be there, dude. I am not coming. You're too tired. Hard, exhausting work means you're too tired and too broke to disobey God. That is part of God's plan. He has put a governor on your passions, and it's called exhausting work. It, keep, it keeps you from having all this free time and all this free money so that you can give full vent to all your passions. You're like, wow, then praise God for work. Exactly. Amen. It is a sanctifying thing that God requires work. In John 4, verse 6, Jacob's whale was there, and Jesus, being wearied, kapos, from his journey, sat on that whale. He was weary. The word translated weary is the same word translated here as labor. Let him become weary in his work. Okay. Here's a second one. This... Work not only sanctifies us, but it dignifies us and leads to self-respect. One of the things in the Bible that you'll find that God wants us to help to do with the poor is to help them regain their dignity. God does not want us to embarrass the poor. He does want us to help the poor, but He does not want us to expose them, to embarrass them, to humiliate them. And the way he would do this, it's so beautiful. God's love for the poor, whereas uh, at the same time, he would elevate them and dignify them. And the way he would do it in the agricultural culture of first century Israel and, and Old Testament Israel, 
is he made laws called gleaning laws. When you had, if you're rich enough, you had this big field, you'd go through and you glean the harvest. But here's what he says in Leviticus 23, 22. When you reap your harvest, you're to not make complete riddance of the corners of the field. But when you reap, uh, you're not to gather all the gleanings. That is, it, the, when you're reaping the harvest, it would fall in the ground. Uh, then you'd have the corners that you'd usually get last. And he says, leave the corners. If it falls along the ground, some of the excess, leave it there. Why? But leave them for the poor and the stranger. Remember, I am the Lord your God. So here's the thing. They were to intentionally provide but not without the receiver participating in the provision. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, yes, you give, but don't do it conspicuously. Do it as, with as little fanfare as possible in order to let them participate in their own elevation and dignifying. Now, that is God's approach to the poor. <clears throat> And one of the things that work then does, which is why you have the gleaning laws, is that work elevates, work dignifies. It is, it is embarrassing. It is humiliating. And you, some of you know how that feels, and I do too, to have to go to somebody and ask for money. That's why God wants us to anticipate people's needs. Try to watch. Keep your antenna up so you can see it happening in front of you so that you, they don't have to then come forward, you can approach them quietly. That's also why, that's one of the main reasons why, he says that when you do give, make sure you don't blow the trumpet in front of you because you embarrass the person you're going to give it to. So it dignifies us. A third reason for work is that it is nation-changing, nation-saving, and culturally necessary. It is a cultural necessity. That work is a biblical and Christian concept, and as that idea permeates a society, it builds up that culture and nation. We should not refer to a category of people as working class, as if that is a lesser an inferior group. No, my dear friend, that is your superior group. The working class. That means you have so learned Christ or you have heard from somebody who learned Christ or heard from somebody from somebody who learned Christ because the Christian community is the primary promoter of solid, productive labor. In the ancient world, they got their profits by war, kidnappings, cheatings, stealing, thuggery, pillaging. In the Christian world, a whole new culture developed, and that is people earned their way by hard work. It is a Christian concept. Now get this. The number of people who now receive welfare of some form in the United States is around 60 million. You'll get a little bit 
a little above, some below that number, but that's pretty close. That does not include, I'm not talking here about Social Security and Medicaid. I'm talking about uh, things like food stamps or disability or grants or something that they did not work for. I'm just giving you a fact now. 60 million people. Now add to that the full-time government workers is now over 20 million. That's 80 million people who are not working for what they receive. Now here's the thing. There are in the United States approximately 110 million employed that are paying not only for themselves, but for all these other approximately 80 million. 110 million paying for the 80 million. As that number rises and this number falls, that is not a nation that will survive. It doesn't matter how, it doesn't matter how much of a need these people have. You can't have more ticks than you got dog. <laughs> you, I mean, are you going to have, what's going to happen when you got all ticks and no dog? And I'm not necessarily referring to people who are receiving subsistence as ticks. <laughs> I know it sounds like it, but not really. Here is what Adrian Rogers said, uh, a pastor, great pastor, and I, I just wonder, he's called a, the Prince of Preachers. He's now with the Lord, but this was a generation ago. He, he, he made this statement, the government cannot give to anybody that which it does not first take from someone else. What one person receives without working for another person must work for and not receive. When half the people get the idea that they don't have to work because the other half will take care of them, and that other half gets the idea that it does no good to work because they're going to go to somebody who's going to get what they didn't work for, then that, my friend, is the end of a nation. And you cannot multiply wealth simply by dividing it. So the Apostle Paul comes into that kind of a mentality and he says there's something sanctifying and dignifying and elevating and nation-saving about work. It's a beautiful four-letter word. I actually don't think we work too hard and break down because of hard work. I think it's more stress-related. Now, i got one other point here. Paul talks about the issue of stealing, that it's their, his approach is conversion therapy. You have not so learned Christ. The goal, the, the reasons for work that I give you there, now let me say one other thing here, and that is the goal of prosperity. Now, look at this again. Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so, so that, oh wait, don't go too fast. 
because there's the goal. Now, some of you thought I was sounding like Rush Limbaugh, but we're going to end up with Mother Teresa. Because here is the further extension of Paul's apostolic definition of how to view labor. Labor is good. Labor elevates. Labor sanctifies. Labor protects you spiritually. Labor is to be exhausting. Labor is not as its end goal yourself. Simply yourself. But the true needy. See, now here is what Paul says Jesus does in your life. A thief is a taker, right? Now, a, th- a thief is a taker in life. He may not steal everything all the time, but he's, a, he's established himself as a taker. He's a, he takes from you. After he meets you, if, if he doesn't find that you have anything that he can take, then he will drop you because he measures relationships and circumstances based on what he's able to take away from it. He's a taker. That's why he's a thief. Paul says, make a 180 and become a giver. You are becoming, through having met Christ, you're becoming the opposite of what you once were. From taker to giver. You, instead of stealing, now, on the other end of the spectrum, turn and give, after you've worked for it, give to those who are truly needy. So that he's moved from being, it sounds like a right-wing conservative, to being a liberal on the other hand in giving and generosity. I love how the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Spirit, makes all of us uncomfortable. He just leaves nobody untouched. This is a nation-saving word. One verse would save this nation. But Jesus has come to make that so. Paul doesn't say, I see that you have a problem with stealing. He doesn't say, let's pray about it. He doesn't say, let go and let God. He says, stop. Stop the stealing. Get a job. And you do it so that you can give to others. That's part of the conversion therapy. That's part of turning. Until you've turned. It, one of the problems, and it's so in this city particularly, in Flint, Michigan, is that unions want to stop. They understand work. Okay, we've got to work. There's enough southern roots to magnify work. But they want to use work with themselves as the end result. I'm the reason. I'm the purpose of my work. And Jesus calls us to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Him in saying that the whole point of me receiving is so that I can then give. The whole point of me being blessed is so that I can then bless others. So that you're a conduit, not a cul-de-sac. 
Ask God. You, you go to God like this. I challenge you to do this. Go to God and say, Lord, I will bless people financially if you will bless me. God gives you, God makes doctors so they can help sick people. And God will help you financially if you will say, I, I will open my heart and life to help others. I'll pass it on. James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this. Visit the fathers, fatherless, help the widows in their affliction, and keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's the essence of religion, turning outward and blessing it.